Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 912. We will look this morning in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. This is God's Word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, you called us to worship, reminding us that you are God, the great King of all the earth. You rule the nations. And now we pray, O Lord, that you might rule our hearts that what we have read by the power of your Spirit, you might apply it to our lives. And all for Jesus' sake, we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. Some time ago, I honestly can't remember if it was Dr. Ferguson or Dr. Thomas. They have unique accents if you've not heard of them before. So either one of them could have given this name to me, but they were speaking about a name, uh, a man by the name of Evan Roberts, probably not someone that you and I are very familiar with. Let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Roberts. He has some history to him. In 1904 and 1905, he is a part of what is known in church history as the Welsh Revival. So that probably means it was Dr. Thomas being that he is Welsh. Uh, maybe he had a an ulterior motive telling me about him. But Evan Roberts was just a coal miner. There was nothing unique or special about him, except for he came to Christ through an evangelist. And this evangelist on one occasion was praying. And in his prayer, the evangelist said, Lord, bend us. And that for some reason, was powerful. It was influential to Evan. And he took that prayer and he began to grow a burden in his own heart. Lord, bend us. There are people around here who do not know Christ. My fellow countrymen and women, my community, they, they are lost. They are without the gospel. And this man is praying that we would be bent that we might understand the work and the power of the Holy Spirit that he alone would save. And so Evan Roberts took that prayer and he adopted it. 
just a little bit more. He adapted it and changed it. And what he said was, Lord, bend the church, save the world. Lord, bend the church and save the world. You see the history of the church. When she finds herself on her knees, the kingdom of God seems to shine so brightly, doesn't it? And that's a little bit of a picture that we get this morning. We're wrapping up an event that began in Acts chapter 3. The beggar who is healed and Peter preached. Peter and John were taken captive, were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were threatened. And they were told, stop, stop talking about Jesus, stop preaching about Christ. And they were let go. And we pick up here in that same story in verse 23. Aren't you amazed at the response of Peter and John? Just imagine the last few weeks in which we have been talking, these two men who were proclaiming Christ because they love him. They have recognized the grace of God through being saved in Christ, and they're telling others about him. Jesus has only been dead a couple of months, and they find themselves before the Sanhedrin being threatened. Stop doing that. And what is it that Peter and John do? Well, we get a profound response, don't we? What don't they do? They don't change their name. They don't say, we didn't sign up for that. They don't look for another church. They're not looking for a new mailing address. They don't say, okay, we'll stop. What do they do? They go home to their friends their community, and they pray. It's a profound response, isn't it? That these men who were just threatened go back to the community of saints and pray. They seem to think prayer is important, a priority. It doesn't seem to be some optional program in which they engage in. It was the knee-jerk, natural, necessary reaction to problems in life. They don't just pray by themselves. They get the community of people together, and they go before God, and they pray. It's a powerful word for us today, isn't it? That when trials and tribulation come, and they do come, and perhaps you're saying, they're here. What do the people of God do We don't go look for another church or another word. We come back together and we pray. That is what Peter and John are doing. It's a a test of faith, isn't it? The doctor, some people call him Martin Lloyd-Jones, he calls it the acid test of faith. What do you do when trials and tribulation come? If you've been with us any amount of time on Wednesday nights. That's our corporate time of prayer and devotion. We've been going through the epistle of James, and it's, it's the same issue. Trials and tribulations, problems, they're, they're meant to provide for you and for me an assurance of our faith and even a maturity in faith. 
Perhaps we might say prayer becomes the ultimate test of our profession of faith. What do we do when problems come? Let's take a look at this body of believers. Let's look at their prayer together, the content. I want us to see three things in our time this morning. The first, know who you are praying to. Know who you are praying to. The people, they they get a report from Peter and John, and in one voice, they begin to pray. I don't think it means that however many people there were there, I don't think they're all saying something at one time. I think what you're getting here is they all agree with the content of the prayer that is being uttered. Peter and John tell them what's happened. They decide prayer is what is most needed and necessary corporately. And so they begin to pray. And what do we learn about their prayer? They're very, very clear in who they are praying to. They're very clear in who they are praying to. You think about the context of what they've just gone through. Their situation is quite urgent. They are in a dire and burdensome situation. However, when you read their prayer, is that what you get? When they begin their prayer, are you thinking that they are anxious people? They're rushed and urgent. Actually, I think it's the opposite. As they begin to pray, it seems as though they are not urgent. They are quite calm because they know who they are praying to. They can be calm. They can be confident. And they can be courageous because, well, because they have a great God. And they know him well. And so what do we learn about God from this particular prayer? Well, we learn even in the very opening words, sovereign, God is sovereign. They begin with this confidence. We know that you are in control, O Lord. And I think it's very important that you and I see that because the size of their God determined the size of their petition. They understood him to be sovereign over all things. And that meant we could ask anything of you because there is nothing too hard for you. That's still true today. You see, your view of God shapes the way in which you and I pray. If you have a small view of God, if you have a limited view, God has limits and boundaries. There are some things he can and cannot do. If that's your view, it's easily seen by the petitions and prayers that you make before him. Because a limited God can only handle a limited prayer request. But when you recognize, even as these dear saints did, he is sovereign over all, there's not a request that you cannot make. And it's not even a request that you can't make. You can make it with confidence. And that's what you're seeing here. On one occasion, it's October, so we should probably talk about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, you remember the nailing of the 95 Theses. That's not what we're going to talk about, but that's the man we're talking about. On one occasion, he was speaking to a man by the name of Erasmus. It was a a little bit of a debate. And he told Erasmus, your God is too human. What he meant is your God is too small. 
the, the, the picture of the debate was Erasmus said, there are limits to where God doesn't need to be discussed. There are topics of conversation that God doesn't need to enter into. And Luther is saying, your God is too small. If you understand the depths and the, 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 the situation, the, the cost that God would give to redeem you, you would say, there is nothing too small. There is nothing so small that you couldn't go before that God and ask, Lord, we need you. And so Luther told him, your God is too human. He's too small. These people don't have a small view of God, do they? They say, sovereign Lord. It's not some mechanical, well-thought-out, postured prayer. They're being truthful to what they believe. They're saying, sovereign Lord. Your English translation's not helping you here because you see the word Lord, and you've probably heard a reference to this before. Typically in the Greek, it's the Greek word kurios, but that's actually not the word here. That is not the Greek word. It's a word that is rarely, if ever, used in the New Testament. We get the English word despot from it. What they are saying here is, God, you are the absolute master. There is literally no one other than you. We have obviously used that in a derogatory term. That is not the context in which they are saying it. They're saying there is no one greater. There is no one higher. There is no one bigger than you, O God. You are the absolute master. It's a powerful shift in perspective. They've just come from the highest court in the land and were threatened and said, you will be beaten if you don't stop. And it's as though their eyes have shifted from the human authority to the heavenly one and said, we are praying not to the one who is enthroned on earth, but the one who created the earth, the one who is enthroned in heaven. We pray to that God. It's a big deal. These people, they, they want assurance. They have just been told, if you disobey, there will be consequences. And what they need is, well, they don't need a little encouragement. When I was in college, I was rushing a fraternity. And uh, more information than you necessarily need, but there was a time in which they they thought someone was infiltrating the fraternity to, to talk about all of its bad things, to get them in trouble. Well, why not it be Danny? He's the Christian. He's not doing all the things that we are doing. And so I remember on one occasion, here I am, I'm standing before this high court called Greek life. And the only encouragement I received beforehand, so what do I say, what do I do? The encouragement I got, Danny, you'll either be a Stephen or a Peter. And I thought, neither one is helpful. I don't want to be beaten or stoned. I, I need assurance. I need, I need to know that everything's going to be okay. And that's what they're saying. Sovereign Lord, we need to know that you have the power to do what needs to be done to protect your people, to provide for your people. We need a powerful God. That's why they say, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth. They, they know who God is. He has created the world out of nothing. Ex nihilo, they say. 
He is the great creator of all things. He is the, he is the one who has sovereignly chose to reveal himself. That's what they're talking about when they say, who through the mouth of your father, David, this great God who created all things has said, I want you to know who I am. I have revealed myself through my servant, David, or you might say, my word. And so they quote Psalm 2. Why do you want to know about Psalm 2? Uh, an early church father, Tertullian, what he says is, he says, when people are praying, prayer is asking God for what he has promised. And they're quoting Psalm 2. They're anchoring themselves here and they're saying something about what took place at Psalm 2 is happening here. It's happening now. We understand that the circumstances of our life, it's not new, it's not unique, it's not special, it's rooted in the Old Testament. There has been revelation by God about what will take place. And so they ground themselves where? In the scripture. And they go to Psalm 2. And they don't say to each other, well, we live in the New Testament. Those guys in the Old Testament just didn't get it. They don't understand what life is like today. No, rather, they say, they got it all the more. God said something that means something for today. That's good news, friends, that when we have challenges in life, we have a word that is still as relevant as the moment it was penned and we go to it. And so they quote Psalm 2, verse 1. And what is it that they're looking at? They, they say, why do the nations rage? That's Psalm 2, 1. Here it's, why did the Gentiles rage? They're seeing some fulfillment here, and what are they getting at? Why are the things the way that they are? Why are these things happening? Why, when I look at the world, is it the way that it is? We ask that question. We want answers, but we live in a world that says when there's problems, we go to psychology, sociology, anthropology, science, you, you name any of the other ologies. And that's where we want truth. And yet we never go to the eternal word of truth to say, what is going on and why? And so they say, what's happening? The same old thing. Forms maybe have changed. Perhaps. Violence is still here. Death is still here. Suicide is still here. We live in a world with ever-changing moral and social ethics. What used to be heinous is now glorified in our world. But it's not something new to the Bible. The Bible has already known that this is what life is like when you are fallen because of sin. And they're anchoring themselves saying, what's taking place here? What's well, because sin has entered the world. It's a real thing. Sin is influential. It is powerful. Actually, it's deadly. Eternally so, and at times even worldly. And so they say, this is not surprising. We know what is happening to us. Psalm 2 told us about it. Sin is here. There was a prophecy, a messianic, that is the Messiah. There was something about what they said, what David said is happening right now. Why do the nations rage? 
Why do the people's plot in vain? You could even translate that. Why do they have empty schemes? It's because they've been cut off from God. When you are alienated and separated from God, you have nothing. You have nothing. No matter what perception you give off, you have nothing. And these people recognize what David was saying in Psalm 2. We see that fulfillment right now. It's a continual fulfillment that sin is here. It's deadly. It's influential. And those who live their life in sin, enslaved to it, they have nothing. But they say, we don't just have the sovereign Lord who is the creator. We don't just have the sovereign Lord who is a revealer through his word. We have the sovereign Lord who's the redeemer. That is why they anchored themselves to Psalm 2, because it looked forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. They understood what salvation was coming, and it was in him. And so they anchor themselves in this, God, you are sovereign. It's a powerful, great truth. They say in verse 28, God's not only powerful, but he is sovereignly powerful. What do they Reference in Acts 4.28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, don't be offended. You, you heard that term predestined. It's, it's in the Bible. I just read it. Let me tell you why this is comforting. Because this is Acts 4.28. This is not Ephesians 1. This is not Romans This is not talking about your salvation. This is talking about your ordinary common life. And the sovereign Lord predestines all of it. Not from the moment only in which you were saved, but from every breath that you take. There is powerful assurance in your life and certainty that it is not up to you to figure it out. It is not up to you to make the right decisions all the time or you'll be damned. You have a sovereign, predestined, providential God who oversees all things. And these people anchor their life to it. Because what is happening, it doesn't feel good. They don't want it. They're not trying to invite it. They need certainty that they have not been left alone. That it's not about them or their plans. This great doctrine of predestination does not promote laziness. It promotes courage and boldness. When you believe that God is in control, there's nothing that you cannot try for the kingdom of God because he in fact is in control. You don't have to have a good plan or a good strategy because your plans and strategies don't matter. It is the one who's behind it. And these people say, we're in a bad situation. We need the sovereign Lord. We need his ear. This church prays with great confidence because they recognize fulfillment is in Christ. They, you know, some today will say things like this. It's alarming. Very sad. People will talk about the death of Christ. It was an accident. It didn't have to happen that way. People didn't know what they were doing. It's accidental. 
it, it could have been prevented. It, it, was, it was avoidable. There was another way. We, we could have done that. You understand how foolish that is, that your faith is not in an accident. It's not in some avoidance thing. It's not in which God is having to come up with a new plan. God has already and always has his plan, and he's predestined it so that you and I cannot thwart it, so that your salvation in your life can be secured in it. It's not accidental. It's not avoidable. It's not even a good example for you and I to follow. When people say, you look at the cross, that's how you're supposed to live your life. No, it's not. Christ was not providing a service on the cross that you and I are supposed to fulfill. He provided salvation in which you and I will never fulfill. And we lean wholly upon him. We receive and we rest in him. One commentator says, verse 28 shows that God did not react to what happened on the cross. God was the author of the cross. Here in this text, that is verse 28, the whole thing is put absolutely perfect. It was the action of God. And that is how the early church explained it in the middle of a prayer. I think it was John Calvin who said this. Missionaries need to be good theologians and good theologians should be good missionaries. The way in which you pray, it talks about what you think, what you believe about God. We need to know who we're praying for. Second, I promise we won't be as long-winded on those. This group of believers didn't just know who they were praying to. They knew what they were praying for. We aren't just praying to you, sovereign Lord. We also know what we are praying for. The, the bulk of their prayer is describing who God is, almost as though their, their request, their supplication was an afterthought. They perhaps even forgot about it because they were wrapped up with who is God. And once they have satisfied, we have, a, we have an understanding of who our God is. Then we say, God, now will you move? Will you hear us? Will you work on our behalf? They don't have a conversation with others. They don't say, what do you think about this? They don't say, come help me figure this out. They have a problem and together they go before the Lord and they say, God, if this is to be answered, only you can do it. And we will ask you to hear us. And so what is their request? What is their desire? We've been afflicted. We have been threatened. And so now, sovereign Lord, we pray, please protect us. Please provide refuge for us. Please provide escape for us. Please, sovereign Lord, rise up and judge those who are against you. That's not a single one of the things in which they prayed for. Although every one of those are very legitimate. God, we're in a tight place. Please protect us. Please preserve us and, and take care of us. Help us escape. Help us find refuge. Judge those who are enemies. Those are good things. That's not what they prayed for. What is it that these people pray for? They ask for a continuation of ministry. They ask for what Luke will say 13 different times in this book. Give us boldness. 
That's the adjective that Luke describes the early church with. This is a bold church. We want boldness. Help us to be boldly, time in and time out. This is how Luke describes this church. We want to be a church that is full of boldness. Whatever is needed, O oh Lord, whatever has to happen for the gospel to advance, let it be. Provide for us strength that we might be bold. Whatever the struggles, whatever the sufferings, do what you must do that people might hear the gospel. I uh, was having lunch with a member this week and we were talking with the uh, manager of the restaurant and he has just had his first child. And he was telling me a little bit about his son and, and the name of his son and how they chose the name. Uh, they chose a name that, off of a biblical name. And it, made, it reminded me. Uh, that is how my wife and I, that's Meredith and I, that's what we decided to do. Not so much biblical names, biblical principles. We wanted convictional points to be the description of our children. So our oldest, Harper, we named him after a Scottish pastor, John Harper, who died on the Titanic sharing the gospel. Our, uh, our youngest, we named after William Tyndale. Lord, we don't just want a child who shares the gospel to the end. We want one who stands on truth to the end. And then we have a middle son. I didn't forget about him. We named him Patton. No, not after the general, but after the missionary to the New Hebrides. And we said, God, I want him to be bold. This is John Patton's own comment. Amongst many who sought to deter me, this is in his autobiography, was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I confess I'm afraid. I want that for him. No, I don't. God, make him bold bolder than me, that no matter who it is, no matter where he is, he would stand firm and share the gospel with boldness. That is what Luke is describing here, a church that is boldness in the face of threat. We want to be bold because we know who we are praying to. We know what we are praying for. Boldness it could mean for you clarity and speech that you would just simply understand the gospel message. Some of you need boldness to say, I don't know who my neighbor is. I'm gonna go knock on the door. Some of you have a family member. Talk to them. Honestly, some of you probably need boldness to say, I repent and I believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Boldness doesn't mean arrogance and it doesn't mean brashness. These people weren't trying to make a political statement. They were saying we want to serve the great king of the nations and we will do whatever it takes to make his name known, even in the face of this earthly government. Boldness. We want to be a church who prays with boldness. And they had no idea what would happen. Perhaps they had that great picture that Jesus had taught them, the parable of the seed, not the one that you and I most think of, the parable of the sower, but the seed that is the kingdom of God, that it seems so insignificant, but when it grows, it grows bigger than anything else. You need to know who your God is. You have to believe in his power to trust that you can share a gospel message that doesn't just draw people immediately. We don't share a word that people just are inviting into their life. You've heard that illustration before. My mom said this to me. I'm sure you have said it to your own children. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all. Do not treat that in the gospel. You always have something good to say, and they will never think that it is good when you tell them. Because they are learning I am a sinner in the sight of a just and holy God deserving of hell unless I repent and believe and say, I'm not king, I'm not Lord, I'm not in control. Boldness. They knew what they wanted. God, make us bold. Lastly, they knew what power would be found in prayer. They knew who they were praying to, they knew what they were praying for, and they knew What power can be found in prayer? They're fighting fear that they might run and leave, but they offer prayer as a powerful answer to it. And God gives them what they ask, that we want boldness and God gives it to them. Don't overlook that. They made such a request and God answered physically. You get the picture of the power of the Holy Spirit coming. It's, it's almost as though it's an affirmation to them. My children, I hear you. I know that's what you want, and I'm providing it for you. I'm going to do this work in and through your life. Please don't be confused by the picture of the Holy Spirit here. What is the role of the Holy Spirit here? It shows up to fill them, not to save them. We've already established that but to fill them so that they might speak, not a new word, not a fresh word, not some fancy angelic word. No, it's that they would speak the ordinary news of the gospel in the hardest of situations. That is true boldness, that when the world says this, you say, no. We stand on the word of God alone. That is what this believing group said. Don't minimize it. Don't think, this is Peter. He's a courageous man. No, he's not. He is the same man who sunk in the water because his faith was shaky. He is the same man who, in just a moment's time, will deny Christ. He will be a coward. He is nothing different than you or I. He asked for boldness. They all asked for boldness, and God answered. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that prayer is powerful if you'll just say the right thing. Prayer is not what's powerful. 
God is powerful who often works through prayers because your heart is bent to the will and to the word of God. And he always works in accordance with his own will and his own word. And we can do that in prayer. And it says, and when they had prayed, it's good news. We want to be a church who prays and asks God for boldness. Let me finish with a story. I think it was Philip Hughes, a theologian, a commentator, who made reference to this. John Calvin had some graduates, five students. They were in their early 20s. They had finished seminary in Switzerland, and they, they went to France. They were arrested for sharing the gospel. Uh, it was in April of 1552. They were sharing. They were imprisoned, and they began to write letters to Calvin. And Calvin would correspond. And I want to read to you just a little bit of what they said in their letters to their former professor. We are bold to say and affirm that we shall derive more profit in this school that is prison for our salvation than has ever been the case in any place where we have studied. We testify that this persecution in prison is the true school of the children of God in which they learn more than the disciples of the philosophers ever did in the universities. Indeed, it must not be imagined that one can have a true understanding of many of the passages of Scripture without having been instructed by the teacher of all truth in this college, prison. It is true that one can have some knowledge of Scripture and can talk about it and discuss it a great deal, but this is like playing at charades. We therefore praise God with all our heart and give him undying thanks that he has been pleased to give us by his grace not only the theory of his word, but also the practice of it. And that he has granted to us this honor, which is no small thing for us who are vessels so poor and fragile and mere worms creeping on the earth by bringing us out to be his witnesses and giving us constancy to confess his name and maintain the truth of his holy word before those who are unwilling to hear it, indeed who persecute it with all their force, to us, to say, who previously were afraid to confess the truth, even to a poor laborer who would have heard it eagerly. May 16th, they all were burned at the stake. But did you hear what they were saying? God, we want to be bold. And the way we learn boldness is in the school of prison, in the school of persecution. And what was their application? They couldn't help but speak. Earlier, we were afraid to tell even a poor laborer, but what you have done here, we will tell the mightiest of men that you are the Lord. It wasn't a strategy. It wasn't a program. It was a prayer. God, bend the church. Save the world. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, 
you are the sovereign Lord. And we want to be a people who don't just have, as we just heard, the theory of that word. We want to have the practice of it. And so, Lord, I do pray that we would be a church who is willing to pray for boldness. Boldness that we might say hard things at hard times. Boldness that says we might find ourselves in uncomfortable situations, being those who would proclaim truth in dark places. Maybe that's in our neighborhood. Maybe that's in our home. Maybe that's in our work, our school, our friends. We want to be people who know who you are, that our hearts and our minds might be shaped by what your word says. So Lord, if there are those here even now who hear this voice and have not repented and believed, we pray as a corporate body, bend them, shake them, that they might find and see Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen.